Progressive Rugby League. You know, once Big Al the Slug and I, John O'Duncan, decided to start this show of ours a couple of years ago, we began talking about certain topics that we could possibly drill down into, topics relevant to the show's shtick and interesting to us. A lot of ideas were thrown around in those early days, something about referees, I think, the story about French rugby league for sure, and the rest is a bit of a blur. But I know what definitely didn't come up. Private equity. Private equity sure didn't come up. Because back in 2018, a year that has officially become sepia-tinged in record time, private equity and rugby league seemed to be part of two completely different spheres, worlds that would never and should never collide. Rugby league, a movement by the people for the people, and private equity, slightly mysterious to me, and maybe best understood by folk who know their way around a Bahamian shell company. But hey, this is 2020, right? A different world. All of a sudden, people are talking about private equity as a possibility for rugby league. Folk in the UK have seen the private cash splashed in the 15-a-side game and wondered. And recently, the NRL, confidence dented somewhat by COVID, have also started flirting, at least with the thought. But could this possibly work? Could rugby league ever give up enough power to make it worth the money men's while? And what about the cultural collision? Rugby league has always defined itself and has always been defined by what it is and what it's not. And some may say the whole private equity thing fits squarely in the what-it's-not category. Then again, isn't a rich benefactor, a Russell Crowe or David Argyle, just another kind of private equity? And after all, in the modern COVID-hit world of professional sport, can beggars really be too choosy? Well, to discuss all this and more is journalist Mike Mehol Wood, who has just penned a thought-provoking article for Forbes on the possibility of private equity being the white knight for international rugby league. How could it all work? What are the pros, cons, possibilities and barriers? I have precisely zero answers, so let's see if Mike can get us on the scoreboard. Mike Mehol Wood, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Great, thanks for having us. It's quite early in the morning, but I'll, I'll try and get it as organised in my head as possible and explain it to you. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Now, Mike, you may have noticed that in my introduction, I artfully avoided defining private equity. That's because I'm not sure I understand it in this context. Can you give us a simple working definition for our chat today, you know, to set us on the path and more importantly, to spare my blushes? Because it's a broad concept that works in various ways in various situations. So how would it work generally in sport? Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a private fund that exists to invest in things. Mm. And, and, you know, hopefully they would say they would hope to turn a profit out of it. Yeah, you, what you touched on there a little bit, like, essentially owners are private investors mm-hmm. i mean a good way to think of it is if you have like a publicly listed company with that which has to tell people how much money it has and you know i'll go on the stock exchange etc it's kind of the opposite of that mm. so i mean venture capital would be a type of private equity for example yeah if you know anyone who's worked in a startup for example i mean i worked in startups in, in berlin for many years mm. the people who come in during investment and financing rounds which is how startups become proper companies they're private funds angel investors or whatever their private funds so if you look at what it means in sport tended to be sort of bigger funds like you know Rothschild CVC people like that who are big organisations who can invest a significant amount of money I mean I think in rugby union it was upwards of two three hundred million pounds so mm. you know that would be twiling about twice the entire value of Super League and about two thirds or 75% of the value of the NRL mm. so you know it's, it's way more money than than what we've seen before or the potential to get way more money. Yeah. 
if you look at like what a lot of people in British rugby league would have suggested that the Hearns get involved, well, yeah, private equity makes the Hearns look like market traders. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that gives us some solid ground to work from. So, what's in it for the client, such as a sport like rugby league? Give us the the private equity sell. What's the ideal scenario and the ideal outcome? Spill it out to me, Mike. Spill it out. So, the ideal situation would be that rugby league gets something, and obviously the private equity company gets something out of it. So, what they would do is they would invest money that we they have, which would previously be unavailable to us because we don't ever. Well, I mean, we've never had that sort of money, and they would be able to move the game to somewhere it hasn't been before. Now, what that might look like, for example, is that they would invest money now in the national game, which currently is not that well-funded. Mm. I mean, certainly not well-funded enough, in my opinion. And then we could make that product, which currently is you know 1% of its potential value into 50% of its potential value, which would generate loads of money for rugby league and also generate loads of money for the private equity fund. So they would get their bit. They would be happy with it. Yeah. We would get money, access to funds that we previously haven't been able to generate ourselves. Yeah. You know, they would get what they want out of it and we would get something that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. Yeah. And Mike, we'll get to the, the specifics of your article around International Rugby League and how it could work there. But just to, to lay the groundwork a bit. So I, I suppose if Rugby League was to get involved with private equity, it's about gaining a, an amount of expertise that the sport doesn't have and therefore being able to get leverage from that and from their extra resources to eventually make more money than what they could have done without them. That's the basic idea, right? Yeah, I mean, think of it this way, right? If you work in a startup, an internet startup, right, you have this great idea, this is what we want to do, but it's difficult to do the marketing or it's difficult to get the staff because we haven't got the money yet. So you go through rounds of investment to get people to invest it and you sell them the idea that this company is currently worth X amount, but in you invest this money and that I'm on that investment, you'll get, you know, 10 times it back or whatever. Yeah. It's not really that alien a concept. It hasn't so much been used in sports that much, but it's really common in almost every other walk of business life. And I think one of the other things is that if you come in, you know, I don't know if you have in Australia, you have the show Dragon's Den. I've seen Dragon's Den, yeah. Yeah, so somebody goes into the Dragons and pitches them the idea and then they say, okay, well, I'll invest in that and I'll take you to the next level. Yeah. And one of the things they often say is, oh, and I can give you expertise because you are in a hospitality business when I've worked in hospitality for 40 years yeah. that kind of thing so you might say that there might be for example marketing advantages or there might be structural advantages or supply chain advantages or any number of things that these private equity companies have already got expertise in or already have companies that do that in their portfolio mm-hmm. the rugby league this contact the rugby league doesn't otherwise have or hasn't previously had yeah. that they might get access to so there's money for one and then there's also like expertise that we could tap into that we're currently not tapping into Sure. Okay. So the private equity peeps are obviously looking for vehicles or ventures to make money from, but it's one thing for rugby league to say, yes, we're keen on private equity, but it's another thing completely for private equity to want to get involved in rugby league. So what are the ingredients that they would be looking for to consider such a a move? I mean, potential value. That's what they're interested in is how can we make money out of this? And what about control? Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get a situation where you get the money without handing over some control. Mm. And so what rugby league might do, for example, is to say, okay, you can have control of one aspect of the game and then you can use your marketing now to market it. This is why I suggested the international game because I feel like it's the easiest product to transfer over to an audience that haven't previously seen it before. Like you don't have to explain, like I said in the article, you don't have to explain why England v Australia matters in the same way that you might have to explain why Wigan v St. Helens matters to somebody who isn't from Wigan or St. Helens or doesn't know anything about those places. Yeah. You could hand that over 
the moment this aspect of our sport is not doing as well as we think it can and we think that you might be able to use your expertise to take it to the next level yeah so i mean in general what they're looking for is, is potential value rather than value so it's up to us mm. or the power brokers in, in international rugby league or super league or nrl or whoever to sell them the potential value and say okay this is what you can get out of this mm. which would also benefit us Sure, sure. And can you give us some examples of where private equity has stepped in elsewhere in the sporting world? You mentioned rugby union in Europe. Uh, what have been some success stories or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, the rugby union one, I mentioned it quite a lot in, in my article where this one called DVC invested lots and lots of money in the Six Nations and the Gallagher Premiership, the mm-hmm. sort of domestic rugby union competition in the UK. I'm not sure that's been that successful. I mean, I go into this in, in the article in much more depth, and I, I defer to the master Tony Collins on all things. <laughs> um, but I feel like that in rugby union, a the people who come in will probably have a preconception of rugby union because of. I mean, I got some stick from rugby union people for, for saying in the article that the people who like rugby union are also the sort of person who works in private equity, yeah. um, which I thought was totally uncontroversial. <laughs> but you know. But I think that's been less successful maybe than they wanted. And then in Formula One, I mean, again, if it was a sport that was well sort of already inclined towards private equity types, then mm-hmm. it was a sport predominantly liked by very middle class, very sort of middle aged white guys mm-hmm. like Formula One. I mean, I worked in Tommy Hilfiger, who was one of my previous jobs when I was living in the Netherlands. And mm-hmm. Lewis Hamilton was our biggest star, obviously the biggest star in Formula One. Yeah. And so I know exactly the demographic details of Formula One. Right. And I feel like one of the things that they've had there that they've struggled with is that they've been coming in and trying not to reinvent the wheel, essentially. They've been trying to say, you know, essentially do more of the same. So, like, what they wanted to do with rugby union often involved, like, just more games between the big teams or, yeah. you know, more tournaments or format changes, which I think the whole point of getting an investment like this would be able to do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. And the problem with rugby union and, and private equity is that in rugby union, a, the people who are coming in already know what they want rugby union to look like because they largely have preconceptions about it. Mm. You know, the, the idea of like disruption, which is a very sort of buzzword in this kind of world, mm. they can't disrupt it because they already have this idea in their head. Yeah. Whereas rugby league is, is the potential to be very disruptive and actually historically has been very disruptive in, in things that we've done with our games in terms of changing the rules, changing the format, all this sort of stuff, which rugby union just is very, very resistant to in general. Yeah. The most successful one I could think of of late is actually a football club because AC Milan, who you know were a huge team in the nineties, mm. won the Champions League twice in the in the two thousands, and then went into a massive, massive decline. Mm. Have taken on private equity investment, and then suddenly have got a lot, lot better, a lot faster. Which I have to say, as a Celtic supporter who got beat three one and could have been six one by them about two weeks ago, right. I was uh, disappointed to find out. <laughs> but um, often it's like going to people who haven't got a background in your sport. And looking at it from a purely hard-nosed business perspective and saying, what's the inefficiencies here? What is this sport not tried before? And often it's things that you wouldn't have even thought of because you don't, you know, rugby league and sports in general tend to be quite backwards in terms of the way that they market, or a lot of the time, yeah, I mean, I mean, sure. I mean in general. But the people who get involved in running rugby league clubs, you know, football clubs or whatever, tend to do it because they want to be involved in sport. Yeah. They don't tend to do it because they think they can make money out of it. Mm-hmm. Because very rarely has anybody come into rugby league and walked away with a profit. So... <laughs> Sometimes I feel like there is a way that if you invited people and said, look, this is just a product, you don't have any idea of what it is, how would you do this? Yeah, right. sure. And Mike, what are the risks, I suppose? What what could possibly go wrong in, in a private equity investment into a sport like rugby league? Well, obviously, they're out for themselves, ultimately. You're dealing with a partner 
who does not have the same interests at heart that you do, mm. in the sense that they exist to make money and rugby league doesn't exist to make money. Rugby league exists to run rugby league. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but I feel like that's true with every partner that you step into. That's true with Sky, for example, who bankrolled rugby league in the UK for many, many years. Sure. Or Rupert Murdoch, obviously, in, the, in, in Australia as well. Like, they don't ultimately care about rugby league. They care about making a profit. Mm. So, obviously, you're going to have this conflict about how much do you give them for the price. You don't want to sort of as some people suggested with the matchroom sport turn kind of a thing, like, I'll just give them the Magic Weekend, I'll just give them the Challenge Cup, whatever. Like, I don't think that's a good way to do it. You need to work out what it is that you want to achieve from this partnership, what they want to achieve from this partnership, and come together and make a, make a business deal. Yeah. Now, I think this is something that every commercial partner that we have, we've had this discussion with them before, whether that's, you know, people sponsoring the Super League or people putting on events or the TV deal or anything like that. They do it because they want to make money off it, mm. you know, and it's our job to get the best deal that makes money and also benefits rugby league. Yeah. And if that means that the other partner makes money, well, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. I suppose the one distinction between a private equity firm and, and maybe a private benefactor or, or even a, a Sky or a, a Fox in Australia is that the difference in emotional investment, like a, obviously a private investor like a Russell Crowe has a, a deep emotional investment, even a company like Sky or a television company like Channel 9 who is purchasing television rights for rugby league, they might not make money on it, but they, they see it as a, a loss leader and that it brings people in and it, it gives a, a nice brand halo for, for their network, for instance, and they might consider it elsewhere. So I suppose that's the the other thing I suppose I'm thinking, you know, like you say, private equity, they're basically there to, to make a buck and then get out. So the risk, I suppose, is if it's not working, they could perhaps leave it in the lurch at a, in a vulnerable position? Is that a possibility, you think? I mean, yeah, but I feel, again, that's a potentiality with any partner. I mean, you look at how many times you believe, for example, hasn't had a sponsor, or you look at the TV deal that they're going into next year, the yeah. discussions where Sky could just leave them hanging after 20-odd years. So, sure. I mean, I feel like that's always there. That's true in any business arrangement, is that they run their course, and eventually... One of the partners goes, you know what, this isn't for us anymore. And then you've got to have a contingency plan at all times. Like, the idea that Super League or the NRL aren't thinking of what to do after their TV deal is ridiculous. They'll have a working group of people who are thinking of that. And if they don't, then they're negligent. They should do so. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into your article in a bit more depth. So in your piece in Forbes, you're talking about International Rugby League is a, a real opportunity for private equity investment because it's desperately undervalued at the moment. And as you acknowledge in your article, International Rugby League is really at the mercy of domestic competitions, especially the NRL, who at the end of the day are trying to maximize the return from their competition. So, so what are the options there? I know it's all hypothetical, but how might a, a private equity firm who sees the potential in International Rugby League approach that stumbling block? Would they be thinking about starting their own innovative international competition and throwing money at players to get some kind of international annual circuit going? Or like, could they influence it from the inside by buying enough of a stake uh, to gain some leverage? Yeah, I mean, so the premise of the article was quite simple in terms of like private equity is a thing and the, the discussions that have taken place with both Super League and the NRL regarding investment. Like, I even just pulled this idea out of my ass. Mm. Like, this was already happening. Yeah. And my goal with the article was to just say, well, hang on, this is what I think we should be, if we're going to get this investment or we want to get this investment, this is what we should try and direct it towards. For me, it's the best product that we have. It's the most sellable in terms of, like, people who don't already know Rugby League. Mm. I feel like Rugby League game, we all believe that that's a great product that people, if it's both, will, will like it. Yeah. 
and I feel like the problems that you have with Super League and, and the NRL is that they're quite intensely parochial, whereas the National Rugby League is the opposite of that. I mean, it's international. Mm. And also, it is the peak of the game. Like You're going to get the best players on the field at the same time. So I feel like that was the best place for investment. And currently, what I would say the biggest stumbling block to investment in the international game is the NRL, because the NRL, at the moment, don't think it's in their interest to prioritise the international game, mm. which... I mean, I think it's intensely parochial, but on the other hand, like, they pay exorbitant amounts to players, and they don't want to get their players injured playing for Tonga against Samoa when they could get injured playing for Benrith against Aramata. Yeah. So, I think the NRL thinks that it is, and I've written this before, not in this article, but in a previous article, the NRL thinks that it's the NFL or the NBA, and it's the leader of everything, and it's the only brand that matters, when mm. it clearly isn't, unless you happen to live in a very specific part of Australia. <laughs> And I don't know if that's a broader Australian mindset that everything overseas doesn't really matter as much. But like they're not particularly bothered about the international game in a way that I think the people in England want the international game to work in general and see the NRL as a stumbling block. So if you could convince the Australians essentially to take on the international game and give it priority, well, the best way to do that is to make it financially viable for them. Mm. Because at the moment they make more money, you know, out of Penrith against Paramount than they do out of England against Australia. Yeah. And that's the argument that the people who run NRL clubs, the NRL, the league and also the people who own the club and ultimately employ the players. That's what the argument that will be they will be receptive to. So put it this way, right? I think that most of the NRL clubs wouldn't let state of origin happen if they didn't think it was financially viable because it's another way that their players get injured. Mm and that they could potentially lose money. The difference is that people believe in state of origin, everybody watches it, and it's a huge financial success. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, the challenge is, how do you make international rugby league one above state of origin? And the way that we could do that is through financial investment. Yeah. Doing something with it that we haven't done before. I mean, it's difficult for me as well to look at the sport without people's deficits, because I'm as deeply ensconced in it as anybody else is. But when I think of it from my board's journalist head as opposed to my rugby league fan head, this is what I think is the most open part of our game to be taken on and run with. Yeah. You know, if I tried to explain it, I mean, as I say, for years I worked in Berlin and in Amsterdam working in what, a $10 billion company in Amsterdam. I worked in many startups in Berlin mm. where you just have to go in and in my job in marketing, a lot of what you do is look at it dispassionately and say, okay, what's good, what's bad, what would you change? And you can say that to people because that's your job is to come in and tell people like, what would you do with it? I wondered what would somebody who came towards Rugby League, what would they say of our game? Yeah. They just looked at it and went, well, this is clear. And to me, they would clearly look at it and go, well, the game, the most recognisable, accessible form of the game, you don't give any weight to yeah. in terms of the international. And I feel like the numbers back this up as well. If you look at when international rugby league gets onto the TV in the UK, it outranks almost every other form, you know, way outranks the Challenge Cup, for example. Yeah. Particularly, it gets the best ratings among the ABC1 demographic, which is exactly what advertisers want. So if you watch mm. Rugby League in the UK, and you look at, you know, they interview the coach, and behind him it says, Mushy P. Yeah. Well, Mushy P is being advertised to a demographic that doesn't have that much money. Whereas mm. if you watch, you know, an international rugby union game, you've got, like, very, very wealthy blue-chip brands behind it. And you sort of, it's been a, a problem that Rugby League, certainly in the UK, has suffered with for many years, is that you kind of get the advertisers of your audience. Mm. And the way that, you know, I can imagine that a big financial services company who are currently sponsoring Six Nations would pay more money than Bachelors Mushy Bees do. Yeah. So it's a question of like, once you get that audience, then you can get sponsors who want to market that audience. Because currently, this is all sort of solar cycle. And at the moment, I feel like we are consistently 
you know, it's a good cipher to see the way that our game is currently marketed, particularly in the UK, to look at who has sponsored it mm. and say, well, how could we expand that? How yeah. do we move on to the next level? And now it's not, it's less of a problem that in Australia because you have your own ecosystem. Mm. But it is a fundamentally limited ecosystem because there's only, what, 24 million of you mm. and a good 12 million of them don't care about rugby league. I don't think we need to convince English people or the British game or the French game of the value of international rugby league, but you still yeah. need to win that argument with Australia. And I think the way that you do that with Australia is purely make it financially viable. Yeah, I you think... You can do through having someone else's money. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's interesting to think about how it could work because I suppose at the end of the day, like you say, for International Rugby League to flourish, first and foremost, there needs to be more of it. And that requires maybe the domestic competitions maybe giving up three or four weeks of their season. So I suppose if you're an International Rugby League entrepreneur, you can go about it two ways. You can somehow buy yourself a stake in existing competitions and maybe convince people from the inside or you set up something amazing that people have to work around you. Uh, kind of like what's happened with the IPL in cricket or all the traditional forms of cricket that we all know and love uh, over the past decades are still around. They just now have to work around. They have to make sure they work around the IPL because there's that's, so much... That's a, that's a great comparison, yeah. Did I make that comparison in my article? I think I did. I'm not sure. But yeah, that is the best way to think about it is to say, well, in 2008, I mean, I, wrote, I write quite a lot about cricket as well. Yeah. And in 2008, before the IPL existed, everybody worked around the test summers and the poles of cricket were the, the MCG in Melbourne and Lourdes yeah. in London. And now the, the main pole of cricket is Mumbai and the IPL. So yeah. you can do that. The reason that happens is because somebody made it financially viable for these Smith and Best Oaks and all that to go and play there rather than playing for England. That's right, yeah. And all the players want to be a part of it, so therefore the national organisations now have to sort of you know, bow down to the IPL. So it's quite interesting how that's worked out and it's just happened in a flash, really. That is the number one most successful example of this kind of thing happening. Yeah. And in the article, I'm pretty sure I wrote in, in, I did make this comparison, but the difference is as well is that in the IPL, like I watch the IPL, but I don't really care who wins. You know, you watch what, Kings 11 Punjab against Royal yeah. Challengers Bangalore, mm. and like ultimately, I don't care who wins because they don't really exist. You know, they're, they're just all star. Every game's an all star game. Yeah. And you watch it because you want to see Jofra Archer bowl at Steve Smith and Virat Kohli get 100 or whatever. That's what you want to watch. Now, the difference is, is that if you were to say, if you were to invest that money in an international game, you would have all the all-star aspects. You know, I mean, I was actually, I was chatting to my mates here in Origin on Wednesday saying that State of Origin, arguably, is the only all-star game in the world that actually matters. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a good it's point. The people, it's an all-star game in which the participants take it seriously. Mm. And the only problem really with it is, you know, if you watch the baseball all-star game or the basketball all-star game, like, it's a lark. Like, they're just fighting around. Mm. I mean, it's good to see them on players, but, like, it does, ultimately doesn't matter. The IPL even has that element of, does anyone actually care who wins? No, mm. I don't certainly don't care who wins. And the difference is, is that in, in Origin, you know, disproportionately a better product than the NRL because, A, it's the best players, and, B, the players care 10% more than they do about the NRL because it's the biggest thing for them. Mm. So imagine if you could have that kind of aspect where you still have the intensity, you still have the will to win, and then you have an established brand like Australia, and then, hey, look at the 30% of the league, 40% of the NRL doesn't qualify for New South Wales or Queensland because they play for Tonga or New Zealand or England or mm. whoever. And then suddenly you've got that aspect as well, and you've got, four, you've got Origin, but it's got six teams who can compete. You know, yeah. Suddenly you've got Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, England, you know, and then beyond that you've got Italy and Lebanon and Ireland and all these other teams as well. So, do you know what I mean? That has to be the goal of it. 
Yeah. Well, look, Mike, you're quickly winning me over here. Now, as you say in your article, <laughs> as you say in your article, rugby league and private equity are not the most natural of partners in theory. Some might argue rugby league might lose some of its soul if it got into bed with a private equity firm. What would be your response to that? Yeah, I think people who would say that, I would just say, like, what, what is this soul? Where has it been? Like, <laughs> 1895, we've had to be professional. Rugby League always had, it was always a commercial enterprise because the second that you decided you wanted to pay players, then you had to charge entrance. Then you had to develop a commercial enterprise that went alongside the guys on the field. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to pay them. So, I, I mean, as I said to you off there before, unless you happen to support Rochdale on it, yeah. as far as I know, the only cooperative-run Rugby League club in the world, you support a commercial enterprise that is attempting to gain an advantage through commercial stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would say, well, when Morris Lindsay invested a load of money to Wigan in the early 90s and made them the dominant team, like, was he killing the soul of the game? Yeah. Like, when Super League was founded, did that kill the soul of the game? Like, that was a huge investment, outside investment in the game. I mean, I feel like, in general, the sort of narrative you find, particularly on maybe it's just social media, but, like, you find on rugby league people is that somehow the pure pre-Super League world was brilliant and, you know, Newtown Jets and North Sydney Bears <laughs> Keeper Cougars and Featherstone, whatever. And it's like, yeah, that was great. Like, I remember that time. I'm old enough to remember that. Mm. Like, I also remember that going to watch Bradford Bulls when they were the world champions, they didn't have women's toilets. Like, yeah. it's a whole fucking stadium. <laughs> like, if you wanted to go to the toilet of Bradford Bulls, it was a wall behind another wall. Yeah. And this isn't just me saying, well, get with the program. But, like, before, there was a time before investment in rugby league in which you can go and look up the attendances. They were far less. This idea mm. that, like, oh, you know, we had great stars in the 80s with Ellery Hanley and whatever. And yeah, we did. But go and look at the number of people in the ground. Go and look at the number of games on television. Go and look at the number of people who watched those games on television. It was just way lower. Mm. Like, way lower. Yeah, it's funny, Mike. People have uh, a very romantic notion of sport and sporting clubs. But in reality, especially if you look at the you know, the top line sports in the world, you're really supporting a capitalist enterprise. You know, if you're a Liverpool supporter, you know, there's 90 minutes of football a week, but around that you're, you're cheering on, you know, transfer deals, sponsorship deals, you know, business decisions. You spend most of your time thinking and talking about business decisions and the sports becomes a bit of a, a sideshow. So yeah, you're right. The- I mean, that's a great example of them because what, what I was suggesting about the outside investment bringing in expertise like Liverpool, brought in expertise from baseball, which totally revolutionized the way that they did their recruitment, mm. for example. So they suddenly have a much better recruitment team because they used a style of recruitment which came from a just completely different sport. Mm. So, I mean, that's just like a little example of if you bring people in from outside who have no preconceptions about your business, what competitive advantage you can gain from that. Yeah. I mean, that's just one club. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Mike, I know your article focuses on private equity to boost international rugby league, but there has as we said, also been chatter about Super League getting into bed with private equity. It's an interesting hypothetical to think about what the Toronto Wolfpack decision that happened earlier in the week where Toronto were effectively kicked out of Super League, what it would have been if private investors were involved in Super League right now and were involved in that decision-making instead of the rival Super League clubs making that decision. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it couldn't have solved the big problem, which which is that Toronto didn't have any money. Or it certainly couldn't prove that they had any money. So Mm. I've not seen really anywhere anything that suggests like that's given me a satisfactory reasoning to think that anybody knew how Toronto Wolfpack was going to be paid for and ultimately that's why they're not in Super League is because you know they already couldn't pay their players this year and nobody thought they could pay them next year and Super League already had that from Bradford Bulls the Crusaders the Witness and on 
and on and on. So I think had there been a outside investor who could have said, well, actually, we think it's financially viable or we think it's necessary for there to be a team in Canada or a North American aspect of the competition, then maybe Super League could have said, well, okay, you pay for it. Or, you know, you, you think this is really, really important. And indeed, in 1996, when Super League was founded, that exactly did happen, and it's called London Broncos. Mm. So it's not unthinkable. But then on the other hand, did Toronto Wolfpack ever make any money? No. Were they ever going to make any money? Maybe. That was kind of the big discussion. I mean, arguably, David Argyle was a private investor who decided that he could make money out of having a rugby league team in Canada until he couldn't anymore. So mm. it's all very hypothetical. You're right. But I feel like had there been private equity, then maybe they might have said, okay, well, we think this is worth investing in. We think this is a pole of the business that is worth keeping up. Mm. As opposed to the current clubs and Super League who went, you know what, I don't think that is worth the amount of money that it would take to make it viable. Mm. So that would have been the discussion. But ultimately, like, it's hard for those of us who believe in rugby league expansion, as I do, as I know used to, to yeah. say, well, you know, we all wanted Toronto to stay in the league. But ultimately, like, none of us have to pay for that. Somebody has to pay the wages of the players. Somebody has to pay the travel. Somebody has to pay all of this stuff. Mm. Super League didn't think that the guy who wanted to take them over could pay it. And he didn't do enough to convince them that he could. And I think that's the simple argument. You know, I think Super League, or certainly the RFL, would have loved for them to have been a, a viable concern. Like, I don't think it was parochialism that kept them out. I think it was, like, the hard-nosed cash. Like, Super League doesn't have that much money, and Toronto lost loads of money. Mm. So, pretty simple yeah, argument as far right. as those concerned. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, in a way, the decision shines a light on to steal a curb your enthusiasm line, just the big bowl of wrong that is the UK Rugby League setup. I mean, I would think that a private investor would look at how it's all set up and, and shake their head. You've got the RFL, the, the governing body, who made the decision to let Toronto in in the first place five years ago or so. And then a couple of years ago, Super League clubs split from the RFL, which, which obviously brings in more administration to the game and costs. Uh, but more importantly, in this case, a totally different attitude to the idea of Toronto. So, now you've got that dynamic and instead of you know a somewhat independent body making decisions on the direction of the competition you've got the other clubs making decisions on the direction of the competition and it, i suppose that the saying goes in the race of life always back self-interest so i think in, in that case it's no real surprise you know that a special investigation instigated by elston into the viability of toronto might have been skewed and and, and from my perspective no surprise that the start line, the finish line, the goalposts set for a Toronto seem to have been shifted and were completely different to what they would have been for for the English clubs. And I think I suppose it comes back to what you're saying that in that the way it's set up, it, it's all set up every man for himself kind of thing. Whereas if it was a centralised independent body looking after the game, they could make an informed decision objectively and decide, yes, we think it can work in the long term. Because obviously Toronto's just started and, and to to make the decision based on what they've done so far is a bit harsh because it's a business that's just been set up and they literally just got into Super League and they literally were about to try to make a bit of cash from bringing Sonny Bill over to Canada and, and hopefully uh, that investment would pay off somewhat. So yeah, to me, it just it just highlights what, what's wrong with the setup of, of the game because I mean, in reality, expansion teams... I think you probably mentioned in your article, they, they require a lot of money and tender love and care to make rights and from the central the central governing body. And, and if that doesn't happen, I mean, you look at what the AFL do. 
they pump in millions of dollars over decades to make sure an expansion team's going to work. So Toronto Wolfpack were really up against it, I think, the way the, the whole thing is set up. So that, that sort of denies what the Wolfpack's business model was, though. Because the Wolfpack's business model, like the AFL, for example, do it as a coordinated thing that we are going to expand into the Gold Coast or we are going to expand into Brisbane. Yeah. Whereas Toronto Wolfpack's gambit was we are a self-funding entity. You know, we are bringing expansion to you. Mm. And Super League, it was very easy to say, well, as long as you're paying for it, go for it, knock yourself out. We're happy to have you and we're happy to, to work with you. But then, it, as has been proven, it was a bit of a house of cards. Like they didn't make that money back and they didn't have the money to keep it going. So I could set up a team in Amsterdam or wherever and say, well, I'm going to plough, plough, plough money into this until the money runs out. Mm. So when the money runs out, are all the other Super League clubs meant to pay for that now? Because this is the thing, right? I think with Toronto, there's this idea that it was somehow a self-interest of the clubs, as if the clubs self-interest was, you know, staying in Super League, when actually the club's self-interest is in making themselves the businesses that work, right? Mm. The only way that Toronto could have been made to work was if all the other clubs were willing to massively fund it, to mm. lose money, essentially, over a long period of time, to make Toronto viable. Somebody had to pay for that. Now, Toronto clearly couldn't pay for it themselves. Carlo, the, the investor, you know, he didn't seem to be able to prove to anybody that he could pay for it. So you're then asking 11 other businesses to take on an enormous external debt for something which may or may not work. And they clearly didn't think it was viable. I don't think it was, you know, Wakefield going, well, that's one less team. You know, the way going to be so as to keep our Super League status. I don't think that was it. I think it was, don't take on an extra X amount of money. I mean, you're asking straight away for clubs like Wakefield or Huddersfield or Salford, you already, you know, Salford don't pay the cap, for example. Wakefield don't pay up to the cap. Mm. And then you're saying, well, Toronto, who didn't get any of the distribution from Super League, part of their deal to come into Super League, come back into Super League, was that they would start to get a distribution deal. You're already asking them, you know, teams who are getting one of 11 split to make that one of 12, at a time when they've had less money than they've, they've had in years and years and years. So I just don't see, on a bis- purely business perspective, like, the heart says one thing, which is that I want the game to expand and I want the game to be seen and played in as many different places as possible. But the head just says, well, He's paying for it. Like mm. that's, and that's, nobody has been able to give me a satisfactory reason why anybody other than Toronto should pay for this. And it feels harsh, but like that, if I had the Super League club, if I was, you know, Neil Hutch or Adam Pearson or, or Ian Manahan, like that's exactly what I would say. Like, well, are you going to pay for that then? Yeah. Like, I mean, to, to be fair, though, I think that that's what Toronto were, were trying to prove that they could pay for it. And, and they were going to ask for central funding just like the other clubs. So I think that the issue became that. I suppose, like you said, the the clubs didn't believe that they could pay for it themselves. But yeah, I think they weren't necessarily asking for other clubs to to fund them. Uh, that they, they were just basically well, saying they, they were because because they were currently getting you know all the clubs are getting a one in eleven split. There would have been a one in twelve for Toronto, so they were asking from for an extra yeah, nine percent out of every club. Um, if you work that out, that, that's yeah. like a hundred grand each. Going some money. Yeah, yeah, totally. But the one in twelve split is the business as usual. That's the business as usual split. So the one in 11 split, that was a bit of a bonus for, for those other clubs when Toronto came in, I suppose. So really, a business as usual split is one in 12 split. Yeah, yeah I mean, that is, that is true. But then you, you're looking at it from the position of reality, which is that if you are you know one of the clubs like, for example, you know Wakefield or someone like that, so option one costs me nothing and option two costs me X amount of money at a time when I really don't have any money. Yeah. So 
you might say, well, if they, you know, and also then you throw in the logistical problems of, you know, them playing a whole season in York and then what's going to happen because previously Toronto were paying for everybody else to go there and because of David Agal's connections with the airline. I just don't think they made a convincing argument that it was going to be in the financial interests of anybody in that room yeah. or on that Zoom call it probably was to make it possible. Like, this is where I feel like, I mean, we'll kind of go off yeah. topic, but I feel like this is where private equity does make a difference, where somebody, an independent person in that room who has that amount of money could have stepped and said, you know what, this is currently to keep Toronto in the league would have cost you all an extra 200 grand a year mm. in distribution or whatever. They could have said, you know what, we'll cover that yeah. because we think this is viable. Now, that's something that we don't have. And as long as we're in a situation where it's 11 paupers in a room talking about whether they let a 12 pauper in, like that's going to be the yeah. issue. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at, as, I mean, you know this more than me, but I'm pretty sure that when the Melbourne Storm joined the NRL, there was this system in place where they said, you know what, we are going to back this up for X amount of years until it becomes viable. Yeah, I think like, News Limited had uh, yeah. a big stake in it and, and propped them up for a while, yeah. Well, so that is essentially an outside investor saying, we think this is a more viable competition if it has a Melbourne team in it, which is totally true. And I think the Rugby League, in their defence, have done this for many years. Like, they thought it was a better team with Crusaders in it. They thought it was a better team with London in it. Yeah. So that it's not as if they haven't put their money where their mouth is, and they've been burnt plenty of times. Mm. So I think what they need to do is, is to say, well, this model of trying to fund an extra pole to the tent, an awning to the tent, if you will, that goes over North Wales or that goes to Toronto, you need to think of a way that you make the tent in general bigger. <laughs> the analogy has run out here. Yeah, no, I gotcha. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you make a lot of good points there. I think it's a, a really interesting discussion. I suppose there's a lot of emotion involved as well. I suppose one last point on the Toronto thing, and I know we have gone off topic a bit, but I can understand the the resentment of some of the clubs if Toronto had abandoned a, a normal season, but they abandoned it directly because of COVID. The very same thing that has so affected every club and it has every club struggling financially, even with government assistance and furlough assistance that, that Wolfpack hadn't had access to so yeah i mean punish them if they abandon a normal season but in the end of the day that they abandoned what has really become a shadow of a season so so surely the punishment and the penance should take that into account is what i'm trying to say because you know the punishment if you abandon a normal season okay you're one of our members but you've really let us down so we may or may not let you back in but in this case they've abandoned really like like i say a shadow of a season so should the punishment and penance be the same thing where where the other clubs are like, oh, we may or may not let you back in when they were already in there and, and they'd been accepted the year before. And there were obviously some outside uh, factors because like, you know, David Argyle, was, it was a bit farcical, but it would have still been going one way or another without COVID. I mean, I, I think you're thinking about it the wrong way around. Like COVID happened, COVID has happened. Yeah. The Toronto situation has happened. The question wasn't do we punish them for it, it's how do we keep it going? And there's no way of keeping it going. It's not like Super League has gone to get the big stick out and say, well, you know, cast the out of Rugby League. It's saying, okay, well, how can this be a viable concern going forwards from now under the circumstances we're in? Because whilst it looks like they're being punished, Mm. I would say it's less of they are being actively punished as in they're impossible to be saved. Like, somebody has to pay for that. It doesn't matter that there was unfortunate circumstances in terms of COVID that meant that they're in the situation they're in. The Mm. question is now going forward, who pays for it? Nobody can pay for it. Like, that's it. I can't see, to me, it doesn't go any further than that. Like, the idea that they're being punished or whatever is, is by the by. Like, yeah. punishment is the wrong way to think about it because the question is, how do you do it 
for 2021 or 2022 and nobody has given satisfactory answers as they can fund it. Otherwise, I honestly believe that if Giacalo Lovioli, if he had had the money that they would be in Super League, if he'd have offered the same deal that David Argyle did or a similar deal or a deal that the rugby league could believe in, they would be in Super League. But he couldn't, so they aren't. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fair enough, I suppose. I suppose, obviously, that is the decision that Super League have made. And that, that's the assumptions that we're making based on Super League's decision. I suppose the Toronto side of the, the fence, they disagree with those assumptions and they would argue they could have funded it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, we've gone off topic. So on the note of, of private equity, though, you mentioned it could be a good idea for Super League, but how could it possibly work considering Super League is run by the, the clubs? They have all the control and, and they obviously made the decision of the, the Wolf Pack. So how could it work in a situation like that? We touched on it a little bit there, which I think if you had an extra party at the table, sort of a, if you imagine there's, what, 12 clubs plus Robert Elston plus the RFL, right? Mm. As imagine there's a 15th seat at the table, which is, I don't know, Rockstone or a private equity fund, right? Mm. And they've got a big stake in the organisation as well. But you might say all the clubs together is 70%, and then there's a 30% stake, which is this other yeah. partner, the private equity fund. Then they might say, well, do you know what? You know, there's a significant voting block with a significant amount of financial backing behind them that could say, well, we think this will be a good business decision or we think this will be... To be honest, I think it's possible to work. There's definitely a world in which it works in Super League and in the NRL. Yeah. My reason to think against it is that when you're dealing with Super League, you're dealing with 12 individual members or in the NRL, you're dealing with 16 individual members. So you have this situation where I feel like there is a lot of potential for voting blocks, there's a lot of potential for discord, whereas mm. within a national game, you're dealing with the Rugby League National Federation, and National Rugby League, sorry. So it seems to me like a much more streamlined process, and there's much less, like there is currently no structure. Like, we have World Cups every four years, and the other three years in between are just like, whatever, we make it up on the fly. Like, you can't plan around it, and it's been that for as long as I've watched Rugby League, since the 90s. Like, there's been no, the joke I always use is that I learned what the word inaugural meant way, way, way earlier than I should have done because everything in rugby league is inaugural. <laughs> like, it's always the first version and there may or may not be a second version. <laughs> so, I feel like one of the things that Super League, Super League has been quite effective, I think, in, in creating its own little niche, its own little product and as with the other, has been very successful in it and what you need now is to have somebody out with that who can say, do you know what, you need to make a product of both your two things. Like, every other international sport has it. Like, yeah. you have the T20 Blast and the IPL and the Big Bash but ultimately you also have the ICC or you have you know you have the Premier League and you have the Champions League and you have the World Cup and FIFA like there is a established hierarchy and in Rugby League it's the wrong way around yeah. and the reason that is, is there just isn't the funds there to make it financially viable now yeah. in terms of Super League the basic premise is that all the Super League clubs want to make money and there is the potential to do that I don't think the businessmen who run Super League clubs dismiss these things out of hand because they don't think it's a cultural fit or whatever mm. and I know that discussions have taken place because it's been reported in the press I don't know how many people read those reports because they were in quite niche business sports business publication and actually the, ma- the majority of what was in the article was wrong right. but the principle that they have had meetings was right like there are definitely meetings I think they actually said it something to do with getting the TV deal which was just wasn't the case I've had that confirmed right. by like sources in Super League that I wasn't what they were talking about but they yeah they have, Super League have definitely met with people to talk about this to, to have open discussions about what might be a way to do these things mm. and definitely about the NRL because that's been reported in the, in the Sydney Morning Herald and, yeah. and, and stuff like that you can go and read it if you're so inclined to read it so they are considering it they are thinking about it what form that might take 
I don't really know. I My suppose it's interesting. Um, it's interesting that the difference, I suppose, Super League, like we say, is kind of run by the clubs, whereas the NRL has an independent commission. So obviously there'd be different considerations there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think fundamentally the issue with Super League is, is and for my entire life watching Rubber League has been a chronic lack of cash which leads to short-termism. Yeah. Trying to work out what we're doing next year. You know, and, and one of the things that annoys me the most about the way that Rugby League is covered in the UK is that every time we have a Magic Weekend we have three podcasts on the BBC going, why do we have a Magic Weekend? It's like, because we fucking do. Like We've had it for 15 years or however long. Every time we have the Challenge Cup you have Dave Wood getting John Wilkin on to go the Challenge Cup's lost its glamour, hasn't it? It's like, well, of course it has, because you keep fucking saying it. Like, tell people it's good, and like, the product is good, and you keep telling them it's shit. Like, I support Scottish footballers, and we have exactly the same problem with Scottish football. Like, yeah. just constantly doing down our own product. And you're like, as long as you tell people this is shit, they'll think it's shit. Mm. Like, and the NRL, God love it, tells you it's the greatest thing in the world all the time, even when it's not. Like... <laughs> Andrew Voss, God love that man. He, everything is the greatest thing he's ever seen. <laughs> Whereas in, I don't know, maybe I just have this particular hatred of the way that the BBC is great on rugby league. I love their rugby league coverage, but some of the stuff that's aimed at rugby league people is so insular and broke your hate. Part of the part of me that works in, you know, that comes from a marketing background is just like, stop telling people your product is shit. <laughs> How do you, it sounds like you don't think it's good, even though I know that you do think it's good. Yeah. So there is this element where you try and, you know, you, people say like, the, the big problem, particularly in, in the UK, less so in Australia, because it's kind of two different problems. In the UK, you have this idea that rugby league is mainstream, that it's Ellery Hanley used to be a big star, but Sam Tompkins isn't a big star. And you're like, well, yeah, because he's on a paywall and, you know, yeah. you, you have to pay to see it, blah, blah, blah. There's all of this stuff. And then in Australia, this problem is that everyone's a huge star and you've got such saturation in the market that everyone thinks we're doing great. Well, yeah, but you're doing great in a market of, what, 15 million people? Mm. Whereas you could be doing great on a market of, if you factor in even just the people who live in the east of Australia and the north of England, you've suddenly doubled to the amount of people and then suddenly you've got a product that people outside of that might also want to watch. And I, I feel like Australia, maybe it's because it's so far away or maybe it's because, you know, you have such a good product internally. The best that people can think of is like, why don't we put a team in Perth? And you think, well, yeah, but... It's all going to be on the wrong time zone. All the people who might potentially want to invest in this or watch it or expand your own, like people who watch the IPL don't have to live in India. The people who watch the NBA don't have to live in America. But at the moment, the NRL clearly only wants people to watch it who live in Australia or on an Australian time zone, which is frankly not that many people compared to people who live in, you know, if you live in America, I wrote an article that the NRL shared and thought was great mm. about like Americans. This is why the NRL should be your next favorite when it restarted in May after lockdown mm. and then you think well yeah but it's on at 2am in Los Angeles or it's on at 6am in New York like, it's not that viable yeah. whereas the plan of like, when England played New Zealand in Denver and play on that time zone for an audience there like okay right that, I don't think that was a particularly successful iteration of, of that but imagine if you could set up that structure mm. like I'll give you an example the Caribbean Premier League is you know a high quality competition, right? The West Indies are the best T20 nation in the world. They're next in T20 is huge. Mm. They started playing games in the Caribbean Premier League at ten thirty in the morning, so that people in India could watch it because they knew that people in India would watch it because mm. they would they presented it. So this is a great product. It's going to be really entertaining cricket. So let's make it as accessible as possible for the people who have the money, who have the TV eyeballs, the advertisers, blah 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 blah, to do this. And they got record ratings doing that. Yeah. So you think well, if we 
had our heads screwed on, we would attempt to do these things and we would make it so that there was a structure that made it possible for a maximum amount of people to watch the product that we offer. Like the La Liga in Spain have changed kickoff times so that people in China or Malaysia or whatever can watch the game at a time that's more convenient for them whilst not being massively inconvenient to people in Spain. They're not playing it at nine in the morning, you know. Mm. How, like in the in the Caribbean Premier League, they were starting games way earlier because there was nobody in the stadium in, in Trinidad. Yeah. But like these little ideas of how do you reach people in a way that's convenient for them? Because if you're saying, look, we have this great product, but the problem is you have to do it all on our terms. The so most people are just going to go, do you know what? I think I'll just watch whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, and at the moment, the NRL it does very well within a very small market and seems quite happy to be the biggest thing in that small market. Whereas rugby league in England, you know, it has such an, a passionate fan base, has such a, a, a brilliant identity in terms of the community, in terms of where it comes from, and knowing exactly, you know, who its core demographics are, mm. and saying, well, why doesn't everybody else love it as much as we do? So, well, you don't offer it to them in a way that they can consume. Yeah. Because, which I feel like in British rugby league terms, is often not their fault, because it is not a rich game. It's not a part of the world that has any money. I mean, God knows I'm from Rochdale, yeah. which is one of the most deprived towns in the UK. Yeah. So if you had someone else's money and you said, look, this is the potential and you sold them on that, as they sell people, you know, the great story of how Marlon Kukash got into a belief that Nigel would sat next to him on a plane. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you could get into that conversation, then you could potentially make that sale and then suddenly the potential to go on and reach that audience is there and it's been done before. Like mm. you, you mentioned yourself, the IPL is the classic example of this where enough people thought it was financially viable. Now obviously that's a much bigger potential audience in terms mm. of just how many people there are in India. But like one of the key things that I wrote in my article, I mean, it's a good place to finish, is that CBC invested 300 million, two to 300 million pounds in rugby union to get like 20% of the Guinness Premiership. Mm. Like the entire revenue of Super League is less than that. Like the whole of yeah. Super League and the NRL together, I think, is like 500, 600 million pounds. Mm. If you were a private equity fund, that's nothing. Mm. Like absolutely, it's like a small investment. So like you can make that sale to somebody quite easily and say, look, this is the potential next best thing. Yeah. And it wouldn't cost them in terms of what they usually invest in major things. It wouldn't cost them that much money, like a hundred million quid. Yeah. So one third of what they invest in rugby union would transform in the national rugby league. Yeah. Like absolutely transform it. Absolutely. Make yeah. it so that Australia had to play New Zealand two times a year or maybe so they had to play you know a tri-nations every year or they yeah. had to be a tour or that whatever you know and then you could go once you've got that structure you could then go and sell that you could go and say okay BBC okay but I mean the line I used in the article is the idea that the great stumbling block for many years was that the NRL that as soon as the grand final and everybody's going to turn off and start watching cricket like mm. you were going to see in two weeks if New South Wales wins on Wednesday then we're going to have a decider at Lang Park I'm sure everyone in Sydney is going to go, oh, sorry, the Sheffield Shield's on. I'm yeah, I don't watch yeah. rugby after October the 12th or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's bullshit. If they've never been presented a product that was worth watching, that was sold to them as something that you should watch that was better than what you usually get to watch. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The international game, it seems like it is the perfect vehicle for a, for an investment. It's undervalued. It's pretty easy entry. And the, the potential is is pretty large to leverage off the, the existing competitions and, and work together with them. It, it could really work. I totally agree with you. So, so Mike, before we finish up, we're running out of time, but getting Rugby League into the pages of Forbes, an American business publication, you know, that shows the sort of creativity, innovation and entrepreneurial spirit that Rugby League needs. Because uh, I'll, I'll be honest, before reading your articles a year or so ago, 
Forbes was basically the last publication I would have expected to see rugby league content in. So how have you sold this one in, if I may? Um, from my perspective, it's they employed me to write about stuff that I think is interesting in terms of sports business. So mostly, you know, sometimes they'll send me stuff to write about, but mostly I just decide whatever I think is interesting. And the business model that they work under is largely to have people who are quote-unquote experts and particularly authenticity about whatever it is that their niche is. So sure. the, the editorial department of Ford tries to be quite hands-off in terms of telling people what they can and can't write about. As long as you don't lie to anybody or as long as you don't you know, go overboard, then they're quite willing to let you have quite quite a bit of free reign because they know that the people who, who they employ to do this tend to be people who know what they're on about and that there is an audience. It's almost inherent on me as a journalist because of Ford and what the publication historically has been in terms of business like you can pick up the phone and get people to answer it in a way that they wouldn't normally do mm, or yeah. you can you can have free reign to talk with a lot more authority and be a lot more in depth like I don't have a word on it if I, this thing I wrote was you know I don't know how many thousand words it's long yeah you know, nobody tells me to shut up essentially <laughs> so I you can write about whatever you want so in my case obviously that's rugby league so that's my, my big passion but I also write about Scottish football which is like my other big passion yeah or even like when I was living in Amsterdam, I was part of the team that was writing about the experience of having coronavirus in Amsterdam because I was the main person they had in Amsterdam. So they, they're very hands-off in terms of empowering the people that they employed. They do not we employed you for a reason. Go off and write about whatever it is that you think is the most interesting and what you think there's an audience for. So a lot of what I write is quite niche because, yeah. you know, <laughs> just maybe that's just me. So you, try, you can try and hit that sweet spot, which is the people like yourself or most of the people who would follow me on Twitter or, or whatever will look at it and go, this is something that I, you know, I might hopefully learn to be new or I might have a different perspective to what I've normally seen before. Yeah. But also, it still can be mass market. Like, people can read it and go, oh, this is, you know, you don't have to know everything about Ruby League. Yeah. In the same way that you would if you wrote for, you know, Ruby League Express or Total RL or something like that, you're dealing with an audience of people who already like Ruby League. Yeah, yeah. So what I try and do is try and reach, like, a middle ground between being accessible to who don't know anything, but also people who know everything there is to know about rugby league people who know far more about it than I do can read that and go oh this is interesting and forms are great because they just they're very hands off on it they just go do you know what you know about this we employed you to know about this <laughs> go on and do what you want yeah. unless, you, unless you libel somebody then we're happy to <laughs> happy to publish it no, well, I think you've you've tread that line beautifully. I think in the articles that I've read, especially in this latest one on on private equity for international rugby league. So, yeah, whichever way you cut it, it's it's very interesting food for thought. Mike, we're out of time, but I, I want to thank you for a very interesting article, and thanks for for flying the rugby league flag with the business crew, and thanks for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Anytime, mate. Anytime. Progressive Rugby League. All right, I found that really interesting. I hope you did too. That's about all we have time for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to get in touch, feel free to do so via Twitter or at ProgressiveRL at Outlook.com. Until we next cross paths, Rugby League. Copy. And see ya.